All right, welcome to another edition of The Big Questions. I'm your host, Big John, and today I'm very excited to have yet another super interesting guest that I think all of us will get a great opportunity to learn a little more about. Uh, my guest is a tech entrepreneur. He found the uh, Friend Finders Network, if I'm not mistaken, sold that for like, and I love saying this phrase, half a billion dollars is what it sold for. Uh, he's currently a 2024 a libertarian candidate for president running uh, as part of the LP national. Uh, and I love this. His theme for his campaign is to unrig the system, ladies and gentlemen, unrig the system. And I think that speaks to all of us. He wants to return government to the American people, really focus more on the individual rather than the institutions. So everyone, I want you to take a moment and say hello uh, to our guest, Mr. Lars Mapstead. Lars, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, so one of the things uh, I want to do is start off talking a little bit about your background, which I found very interesting. Um, I'll let you talk about it. But really, uh, you don't come from a privileged background, right? Like uh, growing up, you had some difficulties in your life, which you overcame. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in Big Sur, California, uh, on the coast, uh, literally on a on a pot farm. And mm -hmm. we had uh, an outhouse and no electricity. And, and later on, the, the little shack that I lived in early on turned into the goat barn. So I often say I, I grew up in a goat barn. Uh, you know, I had the, uh, the, the jeans with the, the patches, iron-on patches on them. You know, I, went, sure. I, had, I was on welfare when I went to school. I had meal tickets, and I was always uh, a little bit jealous of the guys with bologna sandwiches. And uh, I got made fun of for, you know, being the poor kid, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, and even into my 20s, I was still kind of struggling to make ends meet and I'd get to the end of the month and I'd have to eat top ramen for days on end after the, you know, when the paychecks right. ran out and you were, and you were like, how am I going to pay rent? It's coming up in 10 days or whatever, or how am I going to put, you know, scrounging for spare change in your, in your car for, to put some gas in your car or whatever, you know, I, I've, I've done all that. And, and even on, uh, you know, I still measured things for a long time and how much top ramen you could buy with that. Right. <laughs> so like, I'd be like, those jeans right. are 80 bucks. You could buy like, two, three months supply of top ramen for that kind of money. <laughs> right. The, the ramen, the ramen scale, you know, it's yeah. a, that sounds pretty good. Now, uh, it's, you did seem, it sounds like you had, like, if, if I'm not going to say impoverished, you certainly had a very difficult, uh, you, you don't come from privilege. No. And what's interesting to me is I'd love to understand how your childhood shaped your current beliefs in individual liberty and uh, individualism. Uh, because I, I'm tempted to say that a lot of people who did experience your childhood or who have lived the type of childhood that you've lived might be tempted to go full socialist or full communist or full, I need someone to take care of me, full nanny state. Uh, yeah. Talk to me how you arrived at libertarianism and in particular how your childhood may have shaped your future ideas. Yeah. So, well, I mean – when I was growing up in Big Sur, uh, I I had free reign. My parents were, you know, kind of hippies, and they just let me run around like a crazy kid doing my own thing. And so there wasn't a lot of rules. And in fact, when I started going to school and they started to try to apply rules to me, I wasn't having anything to do with it, right? <laughs> like, I, I just right. wanted to do my – I didn't understand why other people got to tell me what to do, right? right. Like, And I think that that, like, you know, went on into my adulthood, and I was like – every time I had an interaction with government and they were telling me how to live my life or run my life. And, and then I would look at it and the common sense would say that was, you know, there's no reason for this, or this is overburdensome or something like right. that. It would just irritate the hell out of me. Right. 
Um, and, you know, there's just so much to my story, but, but one of the things, you know, as far as how I kind of came to libertarianism is, um, I had, I had kind of, uh, gotten into business news. I started watching a lot of business news when I was in my late teens and they, and they were talking about the debt and the deficit and that sort of thing. And, and along came this guy running for president, Ross Perot. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Ross Perot rolled out all these charts and he had these infomercials on how the debt was going to destroy the, you know, the country and we needed to get our fiscal house in order. And so that was the first guy that I really resonated with uh, along those lines. And then the next guy that kind of came along was Ron, uh, Ron Paul, right? Mm -hmm. Ron Paul was also talking about reducing the debt, ending the federal reserve and like the kind of this financial stuff. I've always been fascinated with economy Mm -hmm. and finances and that sort of thing. So I didn't really like, I just looked at what these guys were saying and that's what resonated with me. I didn't really like look at their party or anything like that. In fact, I didn't right. even know Ron Paul was running as a libertarian. Like that wasn't a thing. Um, right. I didn't find out I was a libertarian until uh, in 2007, there was a quiz going around on Facebook, right? And I thought, oh, this will be funny. I wonder <laughs> if it'll decide if I'm a Democrat or a Republican because I've never right. been able to feel like I fit in either of those camps. And so I took the quiz and it said libertarian. And I was like, what is a libertarian? <laughs> so I, I Googled, what is a libertarian? Right. right, and, then right. I, and then I started reading up on it and I was like, oh, these are my people. This is, this is where I was supposed to be this whole time. I didn't even know this was a thing. And then I realized Ron Paul was, had run as a libertarian and I already voted that way, but I didn't, uh, but I didn't right. make that connection, you know? So one of the goals of my campaign is to get every American to Google what is a libertarian. You know, and that's that's a great, uh, simple goal, right? It's it's aspirational, but it's very effective and very simple. What is a libertarian? Because obviously, I read a lot of stuff uh, that says, you know, most Americans or a large chunk of Americans are actually libertarian. If you talk to them about issues, if you took the political party out of the system, if you took politics out of the equation. Yeah. Uh, they're actually libertarian. They're for lower taxes. They're for more autonomy from the government. Uh, less oversight. And when you start looking at things like that, you wonder why more people don't view themselves as libertarian. Part of it is a lack of awareness, but a lot of it is also the duopoly keeping track on the political side of it. Uh, but along those lines, uh, you're a Gen Xer. Uh, I, I, from what I read, uh, I think we're the same age, maybe within 12 months of each other. Uh, my sort of journey to libertarianism, I came at it from the right. I was a conservative. Uh, but I was more of a Goldwater conservative. So I was closer to libertarianism than Republicanism. Uh, and, but I approached it more, for, I, I was drawn into it from the philosophy slash economic angle of it, like the Milton Friedman's of the world, uh, John Locke's and uh, Nacek's and Adam Smith and things like that. So I, I consider myself less of a political creature. You're running for president, obviously. So, the, so you are by definition, a political creature right now. But do you view yourself as a political libertarian above a philosophical libertarian? Are they kind of equal in your eyes? How do you view yourself as as in terms of how you arrived through your journey to libertarianism? I, I think it's just more philosophical than, than right. it did, you know. Uh, but I'm a I'm a big fan of trying to make the party grow and get you know get the libertarians on the map uh, because right. I feel like that's really the only vehicle we have to really kind of uh, push our ideas. I mean, of course, I I love local elections. I love down ballot candidates, and I think that's where we can actually win elections and we can affect change. 
But right. I think that we need the party structure, uh, which I think right now the party structure is lacking and it has been lacking for a long time. We we lack infrastructure. We lack uh, the tools that are necessary to like move a political party forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you can just look at what the forward party is doing and what the new no labels party is doing and the success that they've had. And we need to emulate that because we we've done this for 50 years and we're, you know, they've literally leapfrogged us within a couple of years. And I believe that one of those two parties will take over the spot of the third largest party soon. Right. And they're going to take it over from us. And, and so if we want to be effective messengers of, of our uh, agenda, we have to step up our game and, uh, and it's not, it's not being done right now. So I have a whole slew of tools that aren't really necessarily about running for president, but they're about getting the party on the right track and about getting, you know, getting us to win elections and get our message out there. Well, talk to me about that. You mentioned the forward party, the no labels party. In your opinion, what have they done right uh, to your uh, proposition that they'll be they'll soon overtake the Libertarian Party? Uh, What do you see them doing right that the Libertarian Party politically has done wrong for these past 50 years, as you said? Yeah, I think a big part of it comes down to fundraising. They, you know, both of those groups have, I think, I think uh, no labels has like $70 million. And I think the forward party raised something like five or $6 million. And, and part of that is they're building coalitions across the left, right spectrum that their, their agenda is not, uh, it resonates with both parties, people from both parties. And they don't even, sometimes they don't even require you to like leave the party that you're in in Mm -hmm. order to join what they're doing. Right. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, so I think that's part of it. And they've just been able to attract a really, a lot of really big name people to, with whatever their message is that's resonating with people. So I think that we need to not necessarily change our messaging, but we need to shift exactly how we push our messaging so that we can attract more people. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. no, that's an interesting point. And I never really thought of that. Um, because one of the things I always ask, uh, whenever I have a guest from the LP or someone running for president for LP, I always ask this, like, what's a bridge too far for you uh, personally in terms of compromise, right? So, for example, in twenty um, in 2020, when uh, Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen were running, I had asked Spike, uh, what was a bridge for you too far? Because Spike is notorious for, hey, if you've got one drop of libertarianism in you welcome to the party right so i had asked him what's a bridge too far for you and his answer came out right away bill weld Mm. bill weld being our vp in 2016 was a bridge too far for me and i took that to mean bill weld wasn't a libertarian by any definition of the word right um what's a bridge too far for you so if you if we follow for example this no labels party thing of of building coalitions based on issue, not necessarily party. Uh, what At what point, if we adopted that model in the LP, at what point would you say, mm, but this is a bridge too far? Is it like uh, uh, warmongering? Is it a certain type of for po- foreign policy or economic policy? What would be a bridge too far for you where you said, okay, I understand the coalition building, but I don't want that coalition yeah. to be considered libertarian? Yeah, I think yeah, that's a it's a that's a really challenging thing for sure and I think um as far as like a bridge too far, I th- I think that what it comes down to is libertarians are not necessarily left or right. We're 
against the government. We're, we're, we're for less government, right? That's our principle right. that I, I think we need to focus on that, that that's our right. principle. So for me, anytime somebody is saying uh, we should get the state to, the government should, <laughs> uh, we should pass some more laws too, right? right. I, I, that's that for me, that's the bridge too far is that uh, if you're for in, embracing the state and growing the state, then I can't really work with you because that is mm. the, the antithesis of what a libertarian is, right? Like, right, that's, exactly. that, I think, you know, when it, there's all kinds of things that libertarians believe, but I think the core principle that we all can coalesce around is uh, whether we want to end the state or not, right? Reducing the state. Right. Now, some libertarians want to reduce the state to zero and other libertarians want to reduce the state to like five people. <laughs> but you know we, that's that's our goal that's our north star right so yeah i think if, if you if you if you're like well we need to increase the welfare state we need to use government to do uh you know massive climate change we need to use government to uh enforce you know a whole bunch of laws that are kind of gross and disgusting right uh you know that 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 for me is the bridge too far yeah and and i i could certainly get behind that sort of positioning uh, but since you touched on it, let me go ahead and ask you, among the various labels that libertarians choose to adhere to as part of our almost, it seems, genetic infighting, genetic need to infight, um, where would you rank yourself? Are you a Mises guy? Are you a minarchist? Are you an ANCAP? Are you an agorist? How would you describe yourself if you had to put a label on yourself outside of libertarian? Yeah, I would say I'm a minarchist. I, I believe in kind of the the limited state. I think that we need uh, military for defense. I think that we need a court right. system to enforce property rights. I think that we do need some form of government. I think, uh, I think that if we, if we had full anarchy, it, I think that people would go crazy. And, um, and like, I mean, I, I, I think that it's a good ideal. I wish that, I wish that we could behave in a way that we could all be just anarchy and, and everything would be right. fine. But unfortunately I think that, chaos would ensue if there was no structure at all whatsoever. I mean, I, I think I just, ha all I have to do is go down to my downtown and look <laughs> at the giant homeless encampment. Right? right. And, and, um, and know that if there was no structure at all, that, uh, you know, a vast number of people would be living like that. And I, and I don't think that's good for society. Yeah, I agree with you. My, my, uh, I, I, I'm almost a hundred percent with you on the anarchy. I love the principle of anarchy. And my saying typically is I'd love to be an anarchist if everybody else could guarantee me they'd be anarchists as well. Right. Because <laughs> then we could all live peacefully. We'd all choose who we want to deal with. But the truth of the matter is, uh, what's that? Like the one non-anarchist in the community would be the wolf among the sheep. Right. So, um, I, I understand what you're saying when it comes to that. Okay. Now, having said that, what do you make of the direction of the LP, which I'm not going to say the LP leadership is all are all compri is comprised entirely of anarchists. That would be incorrect. But the, the messaging tone has gotten more aggressive um, and it has been more confrontational than it has been, say, under previous leadership. Uh, do you agree with that direction the messaging has taken? Do you think it's been effective? Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I guess I all, all I can say is that in my own messaging on my Facebook and my Twitter, uh, you know, I've, I've been trying lots of different ways of, of getting my message out there. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, one of the, one of the things that I've done recently is I sort of went to sort of attacking some of the other candidates, right. Or like, or like challenging them or like, mm -hmm. you know, not really disparaging them, but just kind of calling them out for things. Sure. And what I, what I found is that people really don't like that. People, mm. 
people uh, really want to hear your solution. They don't want to see you pointing fingers at other people. Uh, and so I've kind of decided that for my messaging, I'm going to try to stay away from pointing the finger at other people, although it's hard because people piss me off so much. And sometimes <laughs> I just have to like call them out. Sure, right. But, sure. <laughs> um, you know, like Robert Reich is one of my favorite guys to call out because he's just a tool. Um, <laughs> so but I, I think I'm with you on that. I'm with you. Yeah. On that. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, the thing is, is I want to just stick to my messaging and hope okay. that we can craft the message to a point where uh, it resonates with the most people possible. Right. I, my message, like I said, unrig the system is supposed to kind of bring in the everyday regular worker guy the you know, the people who are my friends today. I'm trying to get them on board with libertarian principles and ideas and they're regular working guys, construction workers, gym owners, you know, uh, hair salon owners, that sort of thing. Right. I want to get all those people on board and it's easy because all you have to do is talk about taxation and regulation and uh, you talk about the planning department and like all the things, right. you know, the things where, where they're, they have friction in life. Right. So right. Um, I think that we need to not attack people as much that that messaging doesn't work nearly as good. And it's one of the things that we call out the duopoly on all the time, right? Absolutely. Is that, yes. is that they campaign on other guy, bad vote for me, but they never bring solutions. So I'd like to see overall libertarian messaging move in the more direction of policy and like our solutions, as opposed to like, you suck, you did it bad, whatever. Right. Um, right. I think that that would be, I think that would be better messaging if we could kind of shift in that direction and shift the messaging to be more oriented to just regular folks, because that's who we have to win over. Right. 98% of the people that we're trying to reach are just right. regular, regular people, right. That are struggling right. under inflation right now that are struggling under the healthcare system that are struggling under the judicial system. Um, and the education system, all these systems are rigged. And that's basically my whole message is we need to unrig the system for the regular guy so that it yeah. starts working for them again. Because right now it's working for the elites and the politicians only. And the regular working people are getting screwed, right? And it's been that right. way pretty much my whole life. But it seems to be getting worse and worse because Congress and the government have figured out they can get away with this stuff and that they're not being held accountable at all. So they just keep getting bolder and bolder with their uh, authoritarian grabs and their you know ways of controlling us. And we saw that in the lockdowns, right? We saw that in the COVID law. I mean, it was the ultimate authoritarian push. And we saw the hypocrisy and the rigged system where it's like this bifurcated system where the elites and the powerful have one group of rules and the rest of us have to suffer under a totally different group of rules. Right, right. That's absolutely right. And it's interesting that you kind of phrased it that way. Um, what I'm hearing is you prefer the aspirational messaging, meaning like this is how we can make things better for the most people possible. Um, how do, but it, it, as some, and now I've never, I'm not a political person, so forgive my ignorance if I'm talking in terms of campaign mechanics, you know, educate me a little bit. I'm sure it must be tough for your campaign to look at the success of someone like a Donald Trump or, or even a Ron DeSantis to some extent on the Republican side, uh, and that there's some Democrats like an RFK, say, whose main focus seems to be, as you said, crapping on everybody else. It's less what they can do for you. It's always like, hey, the other person sucks, and they always assume a duopoly, right? The other yeah. person sucks, so you might as well vote for me. Because yeah. at least I'm telling you the other guy sucks. And I, a long time ago, decided I'm never voting against anybody again. I'm only voting for people. And if there's nobody I want to vote for, I'll stay home. 
Mm-hmm. You're, nobody's entitled to my vote. Yeah. So I'll stay home if I can't find someone I believe in. Uh, it sounds to me like you're kind of in that camp as well. But how hard is it politically to say, wow, look at look at someone like Trump. He's out crapping on everybody. The most offensive tweets, like if you think about it, tweets yeah. that 10 years ago would have gotten him disqualified, not on legal terms, but uh, societally, he would have been shunned and said, we can't have somebody like that in office, right? Yeah. How do you avoid looking at that and saying, maybe that'll work for me too. Maybe I should go on this sort of like Twitter jihad and attack everybody. How do you avoid that as a campaign, as a political matter? Yeah. I think, you know, for Trump, it works. I mean, he found his niche, right? He, that's, mm. he's, he's good at that. He's good at like turning the, uh, he's good at turning even really negative stuff against him into something positive. He's a great spin machine, right? Like there, right, there's right. no doubt about it. He, he has a unique ability. So, uh, I mean, I'm not going to try to, you know, match that. I, I just want to come at it with like literal policy and say, Hey, we're not even going to talk about that stuff because right you know the the reality is is the duopoly fans the division that we have right because the division that we have is great for fundraising you know if you if you don't vote for me that other guy's going to get in here and he's going to do the evil bad stuff against you and so that's why you should give me money right now right and so right. you know they don't even want to fix a lot of the problems that are the divisive problems like take immigration for example i don't think either party wants to fix immigration they want to like just keep batting it back and forth <clears throat> and saying, you know, we have the solution. But then they get an office and they don't actually do the thing that they say they were going to do. Right. Like right. it's it's and, and even if they control completely Congress, uh, you see this with all kinds of things, not just immigration, right. where right. they're like, we're going to fix this X, Y, Z problem. And then they get full control of Congress and the presidency and they don't push X, Y, Z thing at all until. Right. The midterms come around and then the other party sort of takes over a little bit and then they start trying to pass it. And then they say, see, we can't get this passed because the other people are blocking us. And I'm like, you just had two years to get through your agenda and you didn't try to pass any of it. And now it's almost like they just use the other party as cover to to fundraise and to essentially like keep the division going. It's almost like it's a giant game and we're all being played. Right. Yeah, not almost, Lars. It is that exactly. You know, <laughs> well, I, yeah, you the system to... is rigged. The system it, is rigged for sure. You're right. I saw your lapel there. The system is definitely rigged. Okay, one last thing on the Libertarian Party, and then we'll get to your individual issues because I I want the people to get a chance to understand where you stand on them. Um, the Libertarian Party, it, it's sort of in a weird. It's in my mind, it's got a weird dichotomy. It should be accessible. Its principles, its its issues should be more accessible to more people. Uh, various individual communities, almost any community that you can name, except maybe like collective, collectivists and socialists, libertarianism is what they're looking for. Uh, when I speak to other candidates, I spoke to Larry Sharp. He's like, I don't understand why the black community, the African-American community isn't more libertarian. Like we empower more uh, African Americans to own their own businesses, own weapons to protect themselves, whatever. I spoke to Chase Oliver. He's like, I don't understand why the LGBT community isn't more libertarian. We've been big supporters of of uh, gay rights and civil rights. I don't understand. In your opinion, is what is the LP suffering from? Forget the political piece of it in terms of fundraising, but I'm saying in terms of messaging and why people, more people, who on the surface. I, you would bet money on would be libertarian or not. Is it because 
we come off as old white elitists? Is is that our problem? Is it that we're not doing enough outreach? Is it that we're not inclusive enough? Uh, how do you see that playing out? Or do you see yeah. it being a problem? Am I right or wrong on that? No, you're right, but I don't think it's us. Hmm. I I think, you know, every day on social media, this is what I get. Lars, I really like what you're saying, and I resonate with what you're saying, but this election is too important to vote for you. So I'm going to vote for Trump again, but I really, I think I actually like what you have to say better, but, you know, since you aren't, you know, your chances of winning are slim, I got to go with this other guy. And so I think that the duopoly has rigged the system in such a way that has made it impossible for us to even participate in the system. It, 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 you, you are forced, if you want to run for candidacy, especially president, you are 100% forced to pick R or D. That's it. You only have those two choices. And then when you get into those uh, umbrellas, they tell you, like, you have to sign this pledge and that pledge, and you have to agree to these set of rules and that set of rules. And and so they basically, uh, and maybe you don't agree with those pledges, but if you want to win and you want to participate, they force you to be, you know, part of that system, right? So it right. really, like, snuffs out any and all other kind of visions or viewpoints or messaging. And it's so I don't think it's us. I think it's literally that they have... Uh, monopolize the system into the duopoly, which is the uniparty, right? And so right. Uh, that is a big part of what I want to do is unrig the system in the whole elect, our whole election system, our whole electoral system is completely broken. The foundation on which it stands is broken. Our republic is completely at risk right now because people feel the system is rigged, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, for different reasons, you think the voting system is rigged, Right. And so I'm looking at all kinds of reforms, and that's one of the main parts of my platform is essentially like ending uh, primaries. I want I want open primaries. I don't think people should be paying for private corporations' uh, primaries to fi- pick their uh, person. Right. Uh, I believe that when I show up to the b- ballot, uh, when I show up to vote, there should only be one ballot. There shouldn't be a ballot for Democrats and a ballot for Republicans and a ballot for, you know, there should just be one ballot has all the names on it, and I get to pick and choose who I want to have represent me, right? Now, that's interesting, Lars. Let me, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's a fascinating point, and I want to like expand on it a little more because I think this might interest folks, and I want to get dig a little deeper, if you don't mind. So, for example, I, my next question was going to be, do you think the Libertarian Party is doing harm to itself by selecting its, its candidates for president and, like, other offices at, at their convention? Because if you took away the the federal funding of primaries and let's leave that aside, but I'm talking about the mechanism, the Republicans and Democrats have these primaries where each state selects its delegates. You could see a candidate, a candidate or two that's mounting towards victory. Everything focuses and coalesces around those one or two candidates on every side. Libertarians to me, it's a free for all. We don't know who's going to get elected or selected to be the nominee until it's almost too late for them to seriously campaign and be effective campaigning. Uh, I was going to ask you: Is would a solution be to adapt, adopt more of a primary, uh, uh, even if it's an open primary, state by state? So by the time the convention comes around, it's really almost pro forma, and then that way the front runners can start really sharpening their message, uh, setting their sights on issues and and target uh, demographics and so forth. Or are you okay with the way? the LP selects its candidates at, at its national convention and the primaries and the caucuses leading up to that are just advisory kind of sort of follow it if you want type of thing. Uh, 
how do you see that? Like, how can the Libertarian Party get on a more even keel with Democrats and Republicans just in terms of here's our guy or gal and here's who you have to deal with? Let's debate. Let's, you know, let whatever the debate rules are, wouldn't it also give the LP candidate a better shot to be able to get into those uh, uh, debate stages? Yeah. So I think that I, I have a whole bunch of thoughts on this. One is sure. that you know, we have this convention in DC coming up. Okay. Right. And, and my goal right now is to get 600 delegates to vote for me. Right. That's like my only goal in life right now is to get these and, 600. And I'm sorry, there's a total of 900 going to the convention, right? Uh, it's a little over a thousand. Oh, so, is it? Okay. Yeah. It, it shifts and we're not, we don't have the exact numbers yet, but I think, you know, it's going to be like between five and 600 votes to win. Right. Is, gotcha. is essentially what it is. Right. Okay. And so, uh, the cost to get a thousand people across the country into a hotel, paying for the convention, paying for all, you know, the travel expense and all that kind of stuff. We're literally talking a million dollars of combined people's money to go to this convention to select the candidate that they want to have. Right. right. And, and the Libertarian Party runs on like a $2 million a year budget. So we're spending half, you know, we're spending a, a million dollars to do this thing. Right. And I think that's a giant waste of resources. We have such limited amounts of money as is. I would rather see everybody spend that money on messaging, on, you know, getting other people elected locally. Like, I feel like it's a giant waste of money, honestly. Uh, right. I would like to see the party, like, do exactly what the, the, the RNC and the DNC do, but I'd like to see it just done in a way where we have open primaries and you literally can just put all the people on one ballot and vote right. for them. And then people, I think what that would do is people would see, hey, these there's these L's on here. Who are the L's? What are they, right? And it would allow us to kind of compete on an even playing field. Now, the the downside and the reason why I believe we, we picked our people at convention was we didn't want to be uh, overtaken, right? We didn't want like, like uh, a bunch of Democrats or a bunch of Republicans to come in and kind of uh, run a candidate inside our, inside our name. Right. And then kind of just usurp it at a, at a certain point. So that, that's the, that's the negative side of this and what we would have to overcome. Uh, but I think if you have 700,000 registered libertarians in America, that that's probably a reasonable enough amount of people to, to, overcome any kind of um, person getting in. And I mean, we have the same problem right now with the convention is that you can come in with a lot of money and you can basically guarantee a certain amount of delegates at the convention and then win the right. convention. Right. So it's, right. It, it, it already is open to gaming, right. It's already open to gaming the system. Um, and so I think I, I would rather see us like on that level of playing field, because I feel like it would get us a lot more media attention, a lot more credibility, uh, I, that's just my opinion on it. So there's some negatives and positives, but I think in the end, I'd like to see us shift away from spending all this money. And, and even if we don't do that, I'd like to see us shift to a more, a more digital convention where we don't all have to travel to this, this place, right? We kind of did right. that in the, in the pandemic, we had a hybrid uh, convention. And part of that too, I think is that there's a lot of libertarians that are in their states that would like to go to the convention, but don't have the financial resources to get there. And they would participate in the process of selecting their candidate, but because they're financially incapable of doing that or job, you know, it, it basically it makes it so the regular working folk of the libertarian party don't get to participate. Right. And I don't think right. that's 
I don't think that's fair or right. And it and it smacks to me of sort of rigging the system for the elites again with inside our own party, right? So yeah. I this is 2023. I'm a tech entrepreneur. There are ways to do this where we can we can have secure, safe elections. Uh, and we can do it virtually and basically have, you know, everybody that's a libertarian voting for, for the party nominee. Yeah. And, and thank you for taking the time to answer that. Cause it's a lot more nuanced than most people, uh, like to think it, it, that it may be. And, uh, you're right. The current, like, I'm constantly amazed that I get this literature from the LP, like, Hey, do you want to be a delegate? Just show up at Washington. You could be a delegate, you know, for okay. your state. Um, and it stri strikes me as weird, you know, like, um, I'm not a political creature, but, uh, and maybe there's a solution that's kind of hybrid, like make the primaries only for registered libertarians, but then make them, um, more digital and, uh, you could still go state by state and have delegates, you know, going for certain candidates or whatever the case may be. You could do a hybrid between what we have now and say what the duopoly uses, but just try to remove those as much as possible, remove the possible gaming. Um, do you still feel though, that the libertarian party suffers a little bit from being the party where people with means, but not necessarily messaging end up. So I'm thinking of someone like a John McAfee. I'm thinking of someone like a vermin Supreme uh, where I'm not even debating their positions, right? Uh, uh, they could come into the party, have perfectly wonderful libertarian positions, uh, but they're being perceived as not serious candidates. They're there more for theater. They're there to make a statement, but they're not serious candidates. Do you feel it's appropriate for a libertarian party to exclude any potential candidates based on the fact that they may not project favorably the image of the libertarian party? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because I think that's what we rail on the duopoly about, right? Is that we, we say, we say, Hey, we're kept out of the debates. Well, mm. we should be in the debates. Right. And then, and then, uh, it, you know, and then like in Reno, we had Reno, right. And there was a guy running for chair, uh, Tony Durazio, Right. And he had, he had gone to all the debates and he had put in the work and the effort to kind of mm -hmm. run for chair. And then when we got to the convention, uh, he didn't have enough chips or something to to make the debate stage for for the for the chair, right? And it was like a I think they were giving like a three or five minute allowed time to to do the pitch, and they argued for more than three to five minutes, keeping him off of doing the pitch, <laughs> right? Right. And I thought, you know, what hypocrisy is this? I I mean, I you know, it wasn't I wasn't for him or against him or anything like that, but I was just thinking, what hypocrisy is this that? We preach that we're kept off the stage and that we're not allowed to debate. And then here we are at our own convention, keeping somebody off the stage and not allowing them to debate. Right. So, right. Um, you know, the thing is, is like in, in all political campaigns, you're going to have to limit it in some way because you can't have 4000 people, you know, uh, you right. know, on the on the ballot or, or whatever. So unfortunately, there's always going to be some limiting factor. And, uh, and some people are going to be excluded. That's just, that's just kind of the way that it is. But I don't feel like we should be excluding people simply because of their messaging, because maybe they're, maybe they're going to bring a base message that no one else is bringing. And if we're silencing them, then we're, we're like silencing that thing. My, one of the main reasons I'm running for president is I wanted to offer more choices to the American people. 
Right. right. So it'd be really hypocritical of me to say, I want to offer my choice, but I'd want to make sure that no one else's choice is offered. Right. And, yeah. and you see that right now is like uh, Joe Biden won't debate uh, RFK. Right. And so RFK is all pissed off and he's like, Joe Biden won't debate me. And so I've I've uh, I've offered to debate RFK several times and he essentially is refusing to debate me. Right. And I, so I said, so it's basically like what I realized is like a pecking order. Right. Right. I only want to debate the guy above me. I don't want to debate any of the people below me. Right. And right. so uh, so what I've been pushing for is I want to have a debate among all the like dark horse candidates, Vivek, myself, <laughs> RFK, you know, some of the other Republican and, and Democrat peoples, the green people. I'd like to see that debate because who who cares what Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden? We already heard them ad nauseum. People are sick of hearing right. that. We want to hear the new voices, the new ideas, the new thought processes, and see if those ideas resonate with us enough to unseat these two top dogs, right? So I feel like it'd be best if everybody that was an underdog candidate got together and did a debate and shared our message with America. I think that'd be a great service to America is yeah. that we would, we would all get a, you know, our message out there a little bit more and we could, and citizens could compare those messages and say, Oh, wow, this libertarian message is pretty good. I kind of resonate with it. You know, maybe I'll vote for this libertarian person. Right. But Right now, the system is so rigged that 70% of all Americans' votes are uh, inconsequential, especially in the in the presidential election. Unless you live in a battleground state because of winner-take-all uh, uh, elections, your, your, your vote is, just doesn't count. It's inconsequential, right? right? And so I, that's one of the things that I really want to change is I'm, I'm sick and tired of voting and never having a candidate that I want elected ever in my life. I was realizing that in my life, I have never voted for a congressperson or you know, a senator or a house representative that actually ended up there representing me. So I have never been represented in my entire life. And I put a quiz out. I said, is that, is that right? Is that, is, you know, am I just, am I even represented at that point if I've never right. been represented, exactly. right? Um, and that, that has to do with winner take all and the duopoly stranglehold on the system, right? And so I don't feel represented. And people, and when I don't feel represented, when, when, uh, when I'm paying taxes, right? And, and people are like, oh, you want to end taxation or you think taxation is theft? And I'm like, yeah. Well, they're like, well, you should have your representative uh, like take care of that for you. And I'm right. like, dude, I don't have a representative. I never have, right? So you can't, t so if I'm not represented, why should I pay any of these taxes? Right. Why should I be yeah. part of your system if I'm not if I don't have any voice in the system? And I think that's probably like 70 percent of Americans feel like they have no voice in the system. Right. And that's that's what I want to unrig. I want everybody to feel like their vote counts, that their vote is counted. <laughs> right. And that and that they are participating in the system, because if people feel disenfranchised, the whole republic's going to fail. Right. People, right. If people right. don't believe in the system, it's not transparent. Um then they give up and they don't even show up to vote. And then they're just even more pissed off because then all government coercion is against them without any representation whatsoever. Right. And, and, and that's going to be the case anyway, but that's an interesting point. Before we move on, you kind of chuckled when you said it, uh, I caught that. Let me just ask you outright. Uh, are, are you buying into Trump's claims of a stolen election when he ran for president? No, I don't, I don't think, I think that the common sense person would say that there is voting fraud. Okay. Right. Like there is, I mean, that's just common sense. Well, out of all it's, the vote. It's, it's not it, zero. 
It's not. Zero. It's not zero, right? It's not right. zero. So there is fraud. One hundred percent, there's fraud, right? Yeah. Um, but was the election stolen with like some conspiracy theory? I I don't think so. Uh, okay. But uh, but with that being said, the whole system is so rigged that it you know that that you can't really trust any of it, right? You can't trust any of it, and you have all these uh, different state. Uh, people running the show and there could be corruption in different states for sure. And, and we, you know, we, we have corruption in, in the highest offices of the federal government. So right. why wouldn't we believe that there's corruption in state level, you know, uh, election processes, right? Yeah. That's, that's interesting because I do think corruption exists. I just have trouble reconciling a body as inefficient and um, incompetent as the government being able to coordinate something like yeah pulling off a stolen election on the presidential level. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's the part that I have. Like I I'm willing to listen to any conspiracy theory. If you could show me the practicality of pulling it off. So yeah. if it's a matter of one person keeping his, his or her mouth shut, it's more likely to have happened. But if it requires like 10 agencies, four officials and uh, a thousand workers conspiring together and keeping it quiet. No, I don't, I don't buy, I tend not to buy into that. Yeah. Look, um, I, I think that I think that people the reason people feel like this the election was stolen and I think this is this is totally 100% real. So in California uh all the st- all the counties along the coast are blue and all the counties along the Nevada border are red essentially, right? Right. Um and so if you live in one of those red counties and you vote uh, for Donald Trump for president, your vote does not count at all because 100% of the electoral votes are going to go to Donald or to go to the Joe Biden, right? They're going to go to the right. Democrat. So you're, you already feel like the system is rigged and that you have no voice in the system, right? Because it literally is. And so one of the proposals I'm uh, offering to change this, this rigged system is proportional representation, essentially where there's, there's kind of two different ways of doing it. Um, one is sort of like the way that Maine and Nebraska do it, where they split up their electoral votes by congressional district. Mm-hmm. And in California, we have 54 congressional districts. OK, so there would be 54 elector, electoral votes and they would be represented by essentially each county would have representation. So those people that live in those red counties would now be able to send their one electoral vote to the you know to their winning thing and i think that's a much better way of doing it because it may yeah. it allows for those people to be represented or the other way repre- uh proportional representation could work is let's say that you have congress and you have 54 people in california uh and libertarians win three percent or four percent of the vote then they get three percent or four percent of the people in congress to represent them like it's literally just picked uh yeah. that these you know so those are some ways that could work but i really feel like i like this idea of at least splitting it up by county so that people that live in areas that are different than other areas can have a voice this winner take all system is just gross it's it's uh yeah. it's a you know that is a rig system for sure 100 percent yeah, and and actually, since you, we started talking more details on issues, I do want to cover your unrig of the 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 system sort of uh, plank because I think it's very fascinating. So since we started talking about elections, I did see where you had proportional electoral. Which now that you've laid it out for me, I was going to ask you about it. It kind of makes sense. It's not quite popular vote, which would be one vote, and then you just add. It, it is still representation through through um, the electoral college, but it's just a little more in tune 
with the the popular vote. So it wouldn't necessarily be one for one, but it sounds like a, a little bit closer. But while we're on the issue of elections, uh, I, I just want to let the folks know as part of your underrated the system, uh, you're saying you want to have uh, ballot access reform, which you, you've kind of touched on. Talk to me about ranked choice vo- voting. Why is yeah. that a good idea for uh, for helping to unrig the system? Yeah. So, I mean, th- this idea of why I was running for, to offer more choices, right? Right now, uh, man, in California, we have such crazy laws. Uh, it, we passed a thing that is the top two. Okay. Mm. So literally you go into the primaries and they vote and whatever the top two vote getters in the primary is, that's who goes onto the ballot. So there's only two choices when you get to November now. That's it. There's no, it's not like five choices or three, no, two choices. And, and in California, because it's so heavily Democrat, you can literally end up with choice A Democrat or choice B Democrat. You might not even end up with a Republican. They've rigged the system so much, right? So you can you can pick between craphead A and craphead B, right? And that's <laughs> and that's your only choice. Right. So like literally the last time I voted, I just left blank because we don't have NODA. We don't have NODA. So my NODA was I voted for against all the bond measures and against all the local crap that I don't like, right? And then I just left blank all of the uh, elected officials that only had two choices because I'm like, I'm I don't want to pick either of these guys. I'm not picking right. between the lesser of these evils. I'm I'm pro, I'm throwing a protest vote and I'm going to still have my ballot counted. And then they're they're going to be like, wait, there was a million uh, ballots counted, but only three hundred thousand people voted for these people. They're very unpopular. Right. Yeah. And that, that's the message that I want to send to, to that kind of stuff. Um, and ballot access. Gosh, I mean, what we've been I've been working with my policy team, Larry Sharps on my policy team, and I got some other great people on my policy team. And we, we literally just went over this. But, you know, I'd like to see the same ballot access for all comers, whether it be independent, libertarian, Democrat. There shouldn't be a party. Uh, application to getting on the ballot. It literally should be the exact same if you want to just run by yourself or through a party. Uh, um, There just shouldn't be any limitation in that. If you, if you work, if you're a gas station attendant, you should be able to rise up to the level of president. If, if that's what you want to do, you should be able to run for president and you should have the same access as the rich and elite guy that's running, you know, the Harvard grad that's running for the Republican or Democrat party. Yeah. And I didn't know that Larry was on your policy team. And uh, I, I personally love Larry Sharp. I'm a New Yorker as well. I've had the uh, the privilege of interviewing him a couple of times. And uh, the what he had to go through for ballot access and yes. to be kicked off in New York at the last minute, as well as the Green Party to be to be fully transparent, yeah. uh, was criminal, was criminal. Yeah. And how some third parties got on when clearly they're not, you know, they just become ancillary arms for the duopoly, right? So. Um, like, uh, I forget what it was in New York. It was some party I've never even heard of. It was like the right to, I don't know, the the rent is too damn high party or whatever it is. You know, like literally, I think yeah. that's what it might have been. But yeah. libertarians and greens couldn't get on the ballot. So yeah. I certainly understand what you're saying there. Uh, okay, let's move on to the economy. Uh, obviously, the economy as libertarians is the furthest thing from a free market. It's overregulated. It's, you know... Uh, there's corporatism involved, which a lot of a lot of people who aren't necessarily aware of the difference between corporatism and capitalism will conflate the two together, you know, and they'll say, well, look at these big corporations, you know, and yeah. we don't, you know, so that, that's sort of like a base libertarian thing. Uh, but the three sort of planks on your unrigging the system would be uh, one, one tax code for everybody, 
you're a proponent of the fair tax yep. and obviously getting rid of the Fed, right? Ending the Fed. Yep. yep. Uh, talk to me. First of all, talk to me about the fair tax. Uh, why are you a proponent of the fair tax, <clears throat> excuse me, as opposed to say what most of us would would might say would be a flat tax and mm -hmm. uh, one tax rate for everybody, no deductions, no nothing. That's a flat tax proponent. I yep. think most people are aware of that. Why is that different than the fair tax? And why do you prefer the fair tax to a flat tax? Yeah. So I, I think as long as you have the IRS, you're going to have Congress in there uh, messing with the tax code. As soon as you get a flat tax in, they're going to start like carving out loopholes again. That's just what they do. Right. Because the, the, the Congress grants favors to the rich and the powerful through the tax code. That's one of the main ways they like grow out corporations. They're like, oh, we'll give these... Uh, tax credits for this Green New Deal stuff, or we'll, we'll bro out these chip companies with uh, special tax credits, or we'll bro out, you know, the banks right. uh, with, so all this stuff is, is basically how Congress like uses the tax code to screw the regular people and transfer money to corporations essentially. Right. So I, I loathe the tax code. I think a lot of people uh, see the loopholes as a rig system. Right. And and whether you're Democrat or Republican, you see loopholes as a rig system. Everybody talks right. about it. Right. And it's it's almost like a class system of like if you have a lot of wealth, you can like go through these loopholes. And if you don't, then you're you know, you're stuck in this right. this other kind of system. So I think we need to abolish the IRS altogether. Uh, I don't feel like we should have to file anything with the government at all. I don't want to keep track of my income. I don't want to have to do all that record keeping. Um, I don't want to be. Like, oh, you did, you forgot to do this one thing, so you're going to prison, or you forgot to do this one thing, so we're reaching into your bank account and garnishing your wages. It's super authoritarian. It's super draconian. And I just, I loathe the tax code and I loathe the IRS. I've been audited multiple times myself. You never want to have to go through that. No one should live in fear of what the government's going to do to you if you don't comply. Um, so I, I want to get rid of that altogether. I think a, um, a consumption tax is much more voluntary, right? If I don't want to buy something, then if I don't want to pay tax, I can just not buy something. Or I can buy used goods because none of the used goods under the fair tax are taxed, right? So if I want to be frugal and not pay the tax ban, I can get around it. It's kind of a loophole. I can get around it by not you know, buying new stuff, right? And so I think it promotes recycling. It promotes like reusing stuff that we have, which I think is a good thing because uh, there's a lot of waste in this country and we would be well, more productive, you know, more well, productive. Well, bartering would also increase under the fair tax. Yeah. Uh, and for, for people who may not know, what's excluded from uh, consumption tax under the fair tax? For example, uh, what people would consider staples and necessities like yeah. food, heating oil. Is anything like that excluded under the fair tax? I think that it's not currently under the fair tax, but I personally think that uh, taxing food and basic necessities is gross and I would – uh, move to not have that as part of the part of the things, but you know the the fair tax. Uh, a lot of the big complaint on the left of, about the fair tax is that it's uh, it's a regressive tax and that it only taxes it taxes poor people more essentially, right? And uh, given my background and given where I come from, the last thing I want to do is tax poor people more. Like that, you know, that's 100% right. the last thing that I want to do. So what the fair tax has in it is a prebate. Essentially, everyone gets a check uh, to cover all the taxes up to the poverty level. Okay. So essentially if you make less than $40,000 under the fair tax, you're not going to be paying any tax and you're going to be keeping a hundred percent of your paycheck. You're, right. and you're not paying any FICA either because there's no, there's no FICA. Like if you get, if you make a thousand dollars for your paycheck and right now they take 250 bucks out and you get, you know, 750 bucks 
under the fair tax, you keep all that money, right? And you spend it how you want to spend it. So I just think this is a much uh, better system. And it also captures everybody, right? Because uh, if you are, uh, you know, illegal, if you're doing illegal under the table stuff, you still have to spend money, right? And so you're still going to get taxed. If you come here from a foreign country and you're buying something, you're paying into our tax system, right? And, and so it captures a lot of revenue from right. a lot of different sources that isn't captured today. And I think it just, it spreads it out a, a bit more and makes it uh, easier. It's just easier for everybody to understand. Like nobody's going to be like, that guy's not paying his fair share, right? Because you <laughs> right. know, you know that they're paying at the thing exactly what they're supposed to do. And I'm not saying that the fair tax is a panacea or it's the ultimate, you know, utopian society tax or whatever like that. I mean, ideally we'd have zero tax. That's my, that's right. my North Star goal, right? But I, anything that gets rid of the IRS and gets rid of this, uh, authoritarian overlord that's you know could put you in prison for not filing something properly is a is a win in my book. No, I and I agree with you. And and very quickly, why would we want to get rid of the Fed? I mean, aren't they protecting us against <laughs> horrible banks and um, monetary policy uh, run amok and uh, all that fun stuff? And they protect us with interest rates. Why would anyone want to get rid of the F uh, Fed, Lars? You know, I I think the best way to explain it to regular people is that when the federal reserve prints the, all this money and they and they they literally create money out of thin air and they they take money and they convert $1 into $10 with fractional reserve um, you know currency but i think what really explains it to regular people is when they do that all that money first goes to the banks right it doesn't go to the regular people it's not like you're getting a check and you get the like the stimulus checks that we had right it all goes mm -hmm. to the bank and then the banks basically disseminate that to the corporations. And then the corporations, you know, disseminate that to other corporations. And eventually, like 3% of the money that the Fed, like, you know, screwed us over on makes it to the regular people, right? And that's why people are just so pissed off. And, and every time the Fed creates these boom-bust cycles, right, every time there's a financial crisis, they bail out all the top people. And that is why we have income inequality, because all the money just basically goes to the top banks and the corporations and the people who will hold assets and the little guys that are regular working people, they don't ever see any of that money. Right. It's just right, like right. It, it really it, that stuff doesn't really trickle down. Right. And so. Yeah. And so essentially, if we if we remove the Fed from the system, we're going to remove a lot of these boom bust cycles that they create, uh, you know, with the interest rates rising and falling. And, and uh, you know, they, they right now we have high interest rates and that's curtailing the economy. Right. And before we had overly loose interest rates and that was promoting people to take risk that shouldn't be taken. Right. So they they create moral hazard in both directions. And we need to just let the market determine what the interest rates should be and and our currency is uh, being devalued drastically all the time, right? Your standard of living is being robbed from you. It's a hidden tax. So it's, the government is basically taxing you through inflation all the time. You don't realize it, but it's almost like that tax is worse than the actual taxation that they have against you, right? And But right. people don't see that, right? And so uh, it's, it's an education kind of a problem and it's kind of nerdy stuff. So most people don't want to, you know, don't want to hear it. But essentially it's like, you're being taxed and you don't know it and the government's hiding it from you. And that's the message that we need to put out there. I, I agree with you. And, and I always have fun with people like Nina Turner or uh, Robert, <laughs> Robert Reich, or, you know, these people on Twitter, because they'll, 
they'll keep parroting the nonsense that inflation is the result of greedy corporations yeah, yeah. raising utter prices. Yeah. yeah, utter nonsense. And yeah. um, the solution they always promote, of course, is the socialist communist one, which is like just demand free stuff. If you think everything, just declare everything to be a human right. Free. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the laws of scarcity and economic laws disappear. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, <laughs> I think people that might be the thing that I think people. I certainly I've had the greatest difficulty explaining it even to my family, my niece and my nephew who are in college, you know, and, and uh, I, I take special pride in my niece because I've been trying to steer her on the libertarian path and which is very hard when you go to college. Right. Um, <laughs> but I would explain to her, like, you know, when something is free from the government, they're really, it's, they don't have their own money. So they're taking it from other people. Right. And when you get a check, uh, that that doesn't have an economic counterbalance, uh, all you're doing is feeding into inflation, right? Because let's say you're paying rent. Once your landlord knows you're getting an extra thousand bucks from the government, guess what happens to your rent? Yeah, it goes up a thousand bucks. And I don't blame him, right? Or I yeah. don't blame the landlord. I blame yeah. the fact that, you know, so yeah. um, I, I think saw, it has to- we, we saw exactly that with the uh, Ford had a thing where um, the, this is exactly, I mean, it played out 100% like that. So Ford had a new, like Ford Lightning or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And they were putting it out there. And then the government came out and said, we're going to give a $7,500 subsidy for Ford Lightning. And it was very, it was very specific to like their one particular truck right. or whatever, right? right. right. And yeah. like two weeks after the government announced that, Ford announced that they were raising the price of the car <laughs> by 7,500 bucks. I mean, it was like, yeah clockwork it was like oh my god this is exactly textbook example of how this works right well it's also interesting to me for those of us and again i think we're roughly the same age so i can say this and i think you know what i'm talking about um milton friedman and the rest of the libertarian economists were vindicated uh during the stagflation of the late 70s keynesians up and down assured me i remember being assured by keynesian economists like hey you can have inflation or unemployment, but you can't have both on in high inflation and high unemployment. And I think that was it from 77 to 79, 80, yeah. uh, up until 81, even maybe when Reagan was a office a year. We yeah. had both. We had double yeah. digit unemployment and double digit inflation. You would think that that would be enough to say, okay, Keynesians, you really were wrong about everything, you know, yeah. but they just double and triple down, you know, you get guys yeah, like because it's, it's because it's so nerdy that most people yes. can't get their head around it. And so they, they just like brush over it. And it's like <laughs> these guys that push modern monetary theory, just drive me oh. absolutely insane. It just, it hurts my soul. they're like, Oh, we can just print money forever. And there's no consequence. And I'm like, um, you know, there was this, there was this, empire called the roman empire and uh you know they they basically fell right because of yeah. essentially the same kind of a principle uh you know it's it's kind of like i was telling everybody like if you if you were to get if, if everybody was getting a thousand dollars more a month from the government in a, in a check right all the time um it, you wouldn't have a thousand more dollars worth of purchasing power because money would become less worth you know, because right. if everybody has money, then then it's easy, right? And you see this in these countries where they had super high inflation, where they're literally burning the money because it was cheap. You know, it was fuel. It was cheaper to burn the money in the fireplace and, and yeah. have that as fuel than it was to spend the money because it was just completely worthless. And I think people don't understand how quickly their currency can become worthless, right? So yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And 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 listen. Uh, political allegiances aside, people don't understand the mechanism of the high inflation that hit the Biden administration being the result of the Trump COVID 
handouts, right? Yep. Uh, and yep. and it's unfair to put it on Trump because both parties supported it, but yep. uh, just putting the president to the action, you know, um, that was lost on people. It's almost as if there was a magic wand that was waved on January 20th when Biden took office and all of a sudden like inflation, right? Like it yeah. had been building up, right? Yeah. So I th you're right. I think that is difficult for people to sign a kind of tie together. Okay. Uh, one of the other major things on your uh, plank is healthcare. Uh, you want to unrig the healthcare system and yeah. uh, your, your three pillars there, transparent pricing, uh, health uh, spending account expansion, HDAs, and then healthcare group formation. Um, talk to me about each one a little bit and explain to me how those three might help unrig the healthcare system. Yeah. So I've been a serial entrepreneur and a lot of times my businesses would be like me and a few people, me and five people, something like them, me and 20 people, right. right? And you try to go get health insurance for a group of people and it's almost impossible. They're like, oh, we only deal with people that are 50 employees or greater, right? Or we only, you know, 10 or right. 12 employees or greater, whatever it is. So the, the small business guy is like left out. And essentially, you have to go on the open market to get your health insurance. And if you if you've ever tried to do that, if you don't work for a company, and you try to get health insurance, it's a nightmare. And the cost is abysmally high, right? I mean, like literally like can be like $5,000 a month for, for health right. insurance, right? It's insane. Right. So it so the whole system is kind of rigged against little employees, little little employers. And that's the backbone of America. The the entire uh the number one employer in America is small business, right? And and we and we make them suffer under this kind of system. So the idea of uh any group could form is like if I work in uh, construction and I'm just a uh, you know regular guy that goes around single single contractor kind of guy. I can group up with all my other contractor buddies and we can form a group to get health insurance uh, through through a system, right? So any any group can can be formed. So I think that's one of the things that I'd like to see because then you you have the power of a group to negotiate prices, right? And when you're right. just when you're just by yourself, you don't have you don't have that thing. So the other idea is that we don't have competition in our healthcare system right now. We have government regulation. Government right. is so embedded. It's the it's probably the number one industry where government is the most embedded, right? Is the right. most regulated. I, I had somebody tell me the other day that health and uh, that insurance companies are not regulated. And I just laugh my ass off, right? Oh because th there's literally an insurance commissioner in every state, right? Like exactly, it's, yeah, it's yeah. like the most regulated industry possible, right? But like as a as a person, a consumer of of insurance, why can't I go to Lloyd's of London and get an insurance policy? Why can't I go to uh, you know some other Hong Kong or whatever, wherever I want to go to get right. or Japan or wherever I want to go to get insurance? Why do I have to be stuck with only the thing that the state gives me? Right. Because right. it creates a monopoly. Right. And then then the government regulates those so dramatically and it just continuously drives up the cost. All this overregulation drives up the cost. We need more competition, not less. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm totally in fear of single payer healthcare because I think of that the course. cost would just be insane. And the the you know, I, one of the things I say is if you want to have the cost of something go up, and the service level go down dramatically, right. just get government involved, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, so so I'd like to see us have more competition. That's where that HCA kind of thing comes in, is that we would like to see people 
kind of take control of their money that they have from the insurance companies and spend it the way that they want to, not necessarily how this insurance company wants to spend it, right? And if you talk to doctors on the other side right now, they're all angry and pissed off too. The system's not working for them either. They just want to treat their patients and they're being regulated to death. And a lot of them are just quitting because they're like, I don't even want to deal with this anymore, right? And the regulations just drive up more and more costs. And it's all kind of based around uh, fear of litigation, right? They, they have all this fear of litigation. So they're always worried about like that. And so they, they have all these extra regulations and we need to like kind of drill that out of the system to bring the cost down. We need more transparency in the pricing of things. So what would be really interesting is if you went to a hospital and they listed all the procedures that you can have. And they told you the price up front before you had that procedure, right? They're like, a heart attack is 50,000 bucks. Uh, you know, a broken leg is 3,000 bucks or whatever, right? And especially on things where you, it's not an emergency and you could right. selectively figure it out. If you could shop around from place to place and make a decision, that would be great, right? That's the market at work. But right now you don't get to do that. You get to go where your insurance company tells you to go and, with, right. and what doctor they're like teamed up with. Why, like... If I want to go to XYZ doctor, why do I, why am I disqualified from going to that doctor? I should be able to go to any doctor I want to. Like, they, right. you know, so they, they basically, you know, are forcing the market to work inefficiently and it's crony capitalism to the max. Uh, you know, Obamacare is just basically government in bed with insurance companies and healthcare companies. And so there's a bunch of ways that we can kind of unrig the system there uh, and make yeah. it easier and, and less costly for everybody. Yeah, that makes sense to me because I think if you look at every industry where there's a heavy-handed regulation from the federal government, the rate of inflation in that industry is multiples higher than the economy at large. So when yeah. you think of healthcare, housing, higher education, look at the inflation rates over the last 50 years across all sorts of presidents, administrations, and congresses, three, four times the rate of the economy at large. Yeah. And the reason for that is because of education is a human right. Healthcare is a human right. Therefore, it has to be provided by the government. Therefore, it's heavily regulated. It's heavily subsidized. Is it any wonder that <laughs> what cost me 10 grand for four years of college when, when we were kids, yeah. it costs my son, my niece, and my nephew 100 grand? That's, yeah. that's not the typical rate of inflation over no. 40 years, right? No. So, yeah. so it, 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 it bears out like there's tangible proof that that this sort of uh, running the economy in that manner doesn't work. And we still don't want to accept it as reality. We'd rather yeah. have the short term fix of free stuff. Right. Yeah, so I think I think if you look at the USSR before it fell, it's a prime mm -hmm. example of what happens when you just get government involved in every single thing. Right. When you right. It, government, I say, breeds mediocrity. There's no uh, reason to like excel if you're a government employee or work for the government, right? There's just no, there's no incentive at all. And so essentially, if you just keep going down that kind of socialist path, uh, everybody just sits around and waits for somebody else to do something and there's no incentive to do anything. So everybody just sits around, right? And then you go to the store and you want these things that are uh, human rights and they're just not even available, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, I, I think the, the, I think the idea is, is, uh, is noble that that everybody should be taken care of but i don't want to use government force to do it no of course not and you know uh to quote somebody famous it's the road to serfdom like when you when you start demanding that you 
be provided with these so-called human rights. All right. Um, I didn't necessarily see these as part of your unrigged system, so I'll just touch on them briefly. You tell me what you think about it. Uh, criminal reform. Where do you stand on that? What do you have in mind for criminal reform? Yeah, the justice system is completely rigged. We have a dual system. Uh, we have a system, and you see it right now going on in the upper echelons of, of a government all over the place. Uh, the rules don't apply to them. Right. You know, or the rules like if um, let's let's take the uh, the cocaine in the White House as an example. Right. I'm, I'm right. not going to say that I know whose cocaine it is. But but if um, if you if you had cocaine in your house and you were you know arrested, it would be bad right. news for you. You'd be in prison or, or, or worse. Right. But right. if you're if you have cocaine in the White House. Uh, they can't possibly figure out whose it is, right? Because uh, there's no way to look through all those cameras that are in every room and figure out where it came from, right? We, we can right. find Osama bin Laden in a cave, you know, halfway around the world, but we can't figure out whose cocaine in the White House it is or, you know, or just whatever. There's so many laws that you see uh, flagrantly violated by elites that just gets brushed under the table and is not a thing, right? And then you right. see the law heavily applied to different groups of people. Uh, and it, it's just, it's, it, the system's rigged, right? And so what we need to do for our criminal justice system is to essentially make it transparent, make it fair across the board. If you, if, you know, if, if a law is uh, not good and it shouldn't be being used, then we should get rid of the law, right? And if the law is, uh, is, should be there and we're not applying it evenly, that causes division, right? That causes people to be upset. And it also causes people to say, well, I don't, I'm not going to follow the rules because the rules aren't equal, right? Like I'm going to just right. do my own. And so you become, you basically create a lawless society by not enforcing the rules equally among all people, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm for all the, the libertarian, uh, you know, things of, of criminal justice reform, uh, ending qualified immunity, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. I think those are all good things that we should be pushing for. But in general, I mean, people just believe that the system is rigged and we could do a much better job with our criminal justice system. Yeah, um, I agree with you. And qualified immunity, civil asset forfeiture, uh, uh, things of that, and get rid of victimless yeah. crimes, you know, yeah. like sex work should be legal. I, 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 I'm assuming that's pretty standard libertarian stuff. Let me yeah. ask you one thing, though, specifically around bail reform uh, in New York maybe in California as well, the, the the practice lately by DAs has been like, eh, unless you murdered someone, you're back out on the street. The jails are too crowded. COVID made that even worse. Yeah. And the communities have been suffering. Like, would you be a proponent of reinstating bail policy the way it was, say, 25 years ago? Do you believe bail is inherently uh, unfair slash racist slash targeted? Uh, how do you feel about bail reform specifically? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not really a presidential thing. It's not something that the president Un really understood. Has, I'm just has control I'm just, yeah, yeah. But my but my personal thoughts on it is that we do have that in California. One penny bail is what they called it. I think we even voted on it as a proposition. Mm. Uh, and I mean, I think what we've seen as a result of that is a lot more crime, a lot more recidivism. Um, you know. The, the people go out and that are bad people tend to do more mm -hmm. bad stuff. Right. So I, it, but at the same time, I also agree that uh, bail is kind of targeted at certain groups of people. And that if you're rich uh, you, you know, you have a different set of rules again for the, right. for the, you know, criminal justice. So I think what it is, is that if you are, if you have a, if you do a violent crime um, the, the rule should be the same for everybody essentially. And, and we need to keep, people that are doing violent crime off the street, uh, at least until they're found, uh, innocent, you know, um, 
because I, I think that we we cause moral hazard with that and we will cause more victims. And, and I yeah, it's it's a fortunately, it's not a presidential thing, so I won't have to make a ruling on it. Um, right. But, no, no, I get you. you know, yeah. But it's, it's definitely a rigged system in in, right. in many ways. Right. Yeah. Uh, last one. Education. Um, yeah. Are you for getting rid of public education? Are you for keeping it and reforming it? Say voucher system. Uh, or, or, or are you keeping the status quo? What's what's your position on uh, public education? Yeah, uh, I think that there is a there is a space for public education, but I think there's also a lot of room for people to ch- make their own choices of what they want to do. That I don't think people should be forced into that system if they don't want to. And I think that the entire system needs a complete overhaul. Like the the education system we have right now is just completely broken. Um, right. It's uh, you know I think you know when school kind of first started out. Uh, in you know when their public education first started out, they focused primarily on reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? And that was it. And there was you really weren't focused on a lot of other stuff. And right. I think education has like gotten too broad and too all inclusive. Uh, and you know, honestly, a lot of public education, I, I know a lot of school teachers, and they they say that they're basically just babysitters. That you know, the, the, and so what I'd like to see is uh, more choices for students and families, we live in 2023. Okay. And we saw during the pandemic that there is an opportunity for online schooling. Now I I agree that it's not for everybody and smaller age kids are going to have a lot harder time doing, uh, doing that, but high school kids can certainly do it. And for those that want to do it, I think that we could, we could drastically reduce the cost of education and we can improve the education by offering online systems to, to because one teacher could literally teach a hundred thousand kids or more, right? And so we could have the very best teachers in America teaching our children because some people are really good at teaching. That's just their skill set, right? So right. those people should be teaching as many people as possible. They shouldn't be stuck in a classroom with just thirty people. They should be right. teaching a hundred thousand people, right? And the teachers that are in around right now could all be sort of tutors helping uh, implement that lesson plan one-on-one so that if people don't understand it, right? And so kids could kind of work at their own pace a little bit more. And I think we could like ex- we could accelerate the really exceptional children through a system like that, right? And right. so we would be pumping out much better educated people uh, at a much cheaper price. So that's just one example of what we could do. I think I'm a big fan of school choice. I'm a big fan of vouchers or however you want to spend your money, right. you know, because... Um, you know, we're, the the problem with the school system too is uh, you're basically forcing uh, people to pay taxes for other people's kids, right? So if I'm a if I'm a guy, I have six kids, I'm getting a lot of benefit out of that. But if you have no kids, you're getting no benefit out of that. And so that's kind of a, a little bit of a you know part of the problem too. Right, right, I agree. Uh, yes or no answer? Would you get rid of the Department of Education? Yeah, hundred percent. Good, good easy. answer. All right. <laughs> easy, easy one. I mean, th- th- this is just like a bureaucratic layer uh, that is completely unnecessary and it just grows and grows and grows like a, a, a tumor and it just needs to be cut out completely. Uh, that money uh, could, you know, easily be spent paying off the debt or, or you know, at a worst case scenario, it could go to, to local uh, states to implement to, you know, have better ed- education or to deliver those vouchers that we need. Uh, for people in order to get their kids to the schools that they want to have them in. Fantastic. I agree with that. Okay. Lars, you've been very generous with your time, but I want to end the show on what I call silly questions. So these have no right or wrong answer. It's just what comes to mind. You tell me, uh, and feel free to answer them any way you want. You're not limited at all. 
Okay, question number one. What internet pioneer or entrepreneur do you most admire? Ooh, gosh. Um, uh, probably Mark Andreessen, just because he was kind of the guy that invented the web browser mosaic. Uh, and, and, you know, I started in 1994, 1993 in the internet. And so I mm. literally started like a week after mosaic was launched. And mm. so I, you know, I had always kind of followed him and, and, and what he did. And I think he was a good internet pioneer for sure. One of the, one of the early founders. That's a great answer. And I think, <clears throat> unfortunately, most people have forgotten about Mark. And uh, much like yourself, my experience, I think, was 94-ish. I was working on Wall Street, and my manager came to me and he goes, hey, uh, you're fresh out of school. Why don't you figure out what this browser thing is? And that's how I learned how, you know, I learned yeah. by building a, a page for an internet uh, for Wall Street Bank. So, gotcha. yeah, great stuff. Great stuff there. Okay. Um You've been rightly adjudicated, uh, Lars, and you're you're up for your last meal. What's that last meal? Oh boy, uh, gosh, I think probably a good steak. <laughs> a good steak, hey. I think probably a good steak. I there's some I love. I love. I'm a total food guy. I love food. It's mm -hmm. like my it's my number one weakness. But uh, I think you know a good steak is pretty hard to to pass up. Uh, I also love sushi a lot. So pizza, Mexican food, Thai food. Like, I hear you. I, I, I hear you. There's a, re there's a reason why I'm not skinny, John. I'm big, John, right? So uh, there's a reason for that, Lars. So I feel you, brother. I feel you on that one. Okay. Uh, your favorite activity that helps you unwind? Uh, I play a lot of video games. Uh, I'm, I'm, I play uh, Overwatch and Fortnite. Um, you know, I, I, there's a bunch of other activities that I do. I, I'm a car, I race cars. Uh, I like gardening. I like to surf. Uh, I have a lot of animals. I love um, just playing with my animals and just hanging out mm. with friends and shooting the shooting the breeze of the coffee shop or, you know, hanging yeah. around a fire or something like that. That's cool. So if you're on Fortnite or anything else, look up Lars. Maybe you could get into a, uh, a match with him. Okay. Uh, AI, machine learning, godsend or mankind's undoing? Uh, I think it's a godsend. I think that there's a lot of fear around it. And I think that's partly because of all the movies that were pushed on us uh, in the eighties and nineties. Right. I, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm using it pretty much every day. I was just using it right now to chop up a bunch of video clips from different podcasts that I was using. And I was just blown mm -hmm. away at how good it is. Right. It's, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, and it's, it's going to usher in a lot of, uh, a lot of work that we do right now that's mundane and repetitive, it's just going to get rid of all that stuff and it's going to make us all a lot more productive and allow us to focus on uh, more thoughtful ideas and more in, and exploring more stuff instead of doing repetitive tasks that just uh, consume time. So I think in the end, it's a good thing. And I think, you know, it's going to replace a lot of jobs. But just like with all technology that we've had so yep. far, it just creates new types of jobs. And I, I think it's uh, I think it's a great uh, tool that we're going to um, benefit from. And I, I think one thing is, you know, being a guy that came in the Internet in the early days and we saw the accelerated growth of the Internet, the AI growth is exponential because it yes. grows upon itself. It uses itself to grow. And so it, the future is going to be really amazing going forward with this stuff. I tend to agree with you, and uh, you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, that's a great point. At every point in our history, some new technology has come along that people have said will destroy jobs, will destroy livelihoods. That hasn't happened yet. And if nothing else, they lead to even more jobs, more uh, innovations. It's, so, it's, uh, it's Babe and the Big Blue Ox. 
<laughs> there you right? go. They, they, yep. you know, I've got this hatchet. That guy's got a chainsaw. The chainsaw is <laughs> going to make it so we can never be a lumberman again, right? But that wasn't the case. Right. Excellent. Okay. Last one. Uh, one song or group that is on your playlist that never gets skipped. Oh, boy. Um, goodness. I don't know. Probably Beatles. The Beatles. Just, You're a Beatles yeah, fan. Probably old school Beatles stuff. I, I, Fair I, enough. It, it was it was the stuff that was played when I was a kid, and so I, you know, I, when it comes on, I'm, I, it gives me some nostalgia. Yeah, no, that's cool. I always say, like, I don't know if it's because I'm a libertarian through and through, but like, if a good punk song, proto punk, comes along, I can't skip it. And I know, and I know, I look ridiculous touching on sixty and and still listening to. Uh, <laughs> uh, still well, listening I almost to the Six Pistols, but yeah, I almost said uh, Bad Religion or um, or Beastie Boys would be two two other. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Now you got me. I, I admit to not being a Beatles fan, but the other yeah. two you mentioned are great. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Everyone, uh, Lars, thank you for joining us today. Please give everyone uh, your social and uh, where they can visit your website to learn more about you and where they could perhaps donate to your campaign. Yeah, awesome. So Lars24.com is my website. Uh, you can go there and donate. And look, I'm self-financing my campaign. I'm going to put about a half million dollars into this campaign myself, but mm -hmm. I need people to send me $1 so that I can show that I have supporters, right? So if you can afford $1, I would super appreciate that. The other thing clearly I'm looking for is delegates. So if you can be a delegate in 2024 at the DC convention, go on my website, click the how to become a delegate, enter your info, and we'll get in touch with you to do that. On social media, Facebook, I'm Lars for President. Just search for Lars for President, you'll find me. And then on X, I am uh, at Libertarian Lars, Twitter. There you go, formerly Twitter, X, formerly Twitter. It's going to take a little bit of getting used to, Lars. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Big Questions. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about Lars Mapstead for president. Join us next time. We'll have yet another interesting guest. Until then, this has been Big John. Peace out, everyone. Thank you.